Good morning. Thank you all so much for coming this morning. Um, nice to see you all. There are a couple more seats in the front, and there are also chairs in the back if you don't have a place to sit. Um, uh, thank you for coming to listen to our talk with um, author, speaker, and Duke Divinity doctoral student, Caitlin Chess. It rhymes with chess. If you ever see it written and you're wondering how to say it in your head, it rhymes with chess. Um, so is there anybody here who can tell me what it means to slide into someone's DMs? What does that mean? Does anybody know? What does it mean to slide into someone's DMs? Seriously, not one? So, okay, okay, can you, what does it mean? To send them a message on like Twitter or a social media platform, something like that. So that's how I met Caitlin Chess. My daughter um, had said we could, uh, we could, we could slide into her DMs, <laughs> message her. My friend Shireen Min and I had been listening to Caitlin on her pod on a podcast uh, for several years, and when she moved to Durham, we were very excited. And, and Claire said, "Oh, let's just." Um, invite her to lunch, and we did, and she came. So isn't that crazy? You can just like message a famous person and you might be able to have lunch with them. Um, and it was great, and so we had lunch, and it was just like talking to a really smart, interesting family member, like a young niece that we're all really proud of. So it was great, it was really fun. Um, so Caitlin uh, started out at Liberty University 2012 to 2016, so during the ramp up to the election in 2016, she was on a travel debate team, which really kind of opened her mind to different ways of discourse and thinking about things. Um, and with everything political and theological that was going on on campus and in the world, uh, she really developed her interest in theology and politics and how those intersected. Uh, so then she went to Fuller, not Fuller, um, um, sorry, Dallas Theological Seminary. I've got it right there. Um, and as a student, she published her first book called The Liturgy of Politics, which uh, is an amazing book, and she's going to talk about some of that today. And after her discussing that book on the podcast, The Holy Post, she was invited to be a um, part-time host, and so she hosts on the Holy Post podcast, which is how Shireen and I interacted with her. And um, in listening to her, um, her thoughtful responses on current topics. Um, it's been instrumental in my own growth while addressing so many of the questions that I was having about what in the world is going on with the church, with politics right now, politically. Um, and I found that her young age is actually an advantage because when she looks at things that happen historically, there are things that I don't see because I lived through it. And as we were just part of the culture of what was going on theologically and politically, um, we don't have that fresh perspective. Um, so uh, I, I, that's something that I really appreciate. So since then, she has written multiple articles in the New York Times and Christianity Today and about 10 other ones. She's been on other podcasts. She's been on forums. And um, her work is, is everywhere if you start to look. So uh, before she starts filling stadiums full of people, we have her here today. So please welcome Caitlin Chess. Thank you, Cindy, that was so nice. Um, it was actually a pretty regular occurrence when I first moved to Durham, was like lots of people sliding in my DM, so I got to meet lots of very fun people, which was really great. Um, this is actually, thank you so much for having me here with y'all. 
It's really fun. Um, I took out some of my Presbyterian jokes because I became a Presbyterian a couple years ago and I'm not usually around other Presbyterians. So, I mean, maybe I should have kept them in, but this is actually my first speaking engagement for 2024, which for someone who spends a lot of their time traveling and speaking is maybe just generally exciting. It was really exciting for me that my first speaking engagement could be a 20 minute drive from my house. <laughs> so thank you for that. But also, as someone who spends all of my time traveling and speaking and writing about politics, my first speaking engagement of 2024 feels a little bit scary. Um, I'm gonna spend the next 12 months talking about faith and politics. And I was thinking about it when I was driving over this morning, how awkward it is to be the person that talks about the thing that no one wants to talk about. <laughs> like, you're not very excited always to have the person come in and be like, okay, we're gonna get into this difficult topic, but it's what I get so excited about. So if you are nervous or worried about this, I will bring the excitement, okay? I am very excited about this. I have learned, um, as we begin to have a year full of conversations about faith and politics, that we tend to jump to the issues. I grew up in churches that had a voter guide, right? What does the Bible say about X issue? Here's the verses on this side, here's the verses on the other side. I've read lots of books about Christian political engagement that are basically 10 chapters with a list of issues, one issue per chapter. What should Christians think about X, Y, and Z? We ask about who we should vote for. I cannot tell you how many times I show up at a church or a school and the first question someone asks is, okay, in this election, who do I vote for? For president, for senate, et cetera, tell me. What policies we should support? What policies should Christians support? What do our theology and what does the Bible say about certain policies? We don't often enough ask what kind of people we should be or what kind of broader story we're supposed to be living into. That's a prior question. Before we get to the policies, before we get to the politicians, do we even know what we think about government? Do we have a theology of a human life together in community? So I think we should start with the very definition of politics, the real meaning of it, the real purpose of it. What do you think of when you hear the word politics? This is usually what we think of, right? We think of voting, we think of the Supreme Court decisions or the decisions that get made in Congress, we think about protests, we think about the ways that we participate on a really kind of large scale, right? Most of us, when we think about 2024, when we think about our political engagement, we think, okay, who will I vote for, for these significant offices? And then secondary to that, what policies do they support? What policies should I support as a Christian? This, this is how I want us to start thinking about politics. These are images of community, of cultivation, of spending time together making a common life, of the sources that we take in, the community that we build, the relationships we have, Really importantly, a picture of people having a meal together. I want us to start by thinking of politics in a much broader way. Thinking of it as the word itself is supposed to mean, the Greek word polis for city or community. Thinking about it more as our common life together. As Cindy said, I'm a doctoral student, so I'm contractually obligated to quote my advisor every time I speak. Um, so my advisor, Luke Brotherton, this is his definition of politics. It is the forming, norming, and sustaining of our common life together. The forming, norming, and sustaining. And I love this definition, not because I have to, but because it describes those different levels. Forming, we do need laws, elected officials. We need a structure for how our government works, how people with very different ideas about what makes a good life work out those differences together. But we also need norming. We need stories we tell about why the government that we have operates the way that it does, why that structure makes sense for the kind of creatures we are as humans, for the kind of community that we want to live in. 
So we need the forming, we need the norming, we need the sustaining. We need the relationships that actually make this thing continue on. One of the examples that, again, my advisor gave very early on that I think about a lot now is someone who lives in a neighborhood with a lot of religious diversity, economic diversity, racial diversity, is that politics starts when your next door neighbor does something you don't like. <laughs> he gave the example of kids in his neighborhood playing basketball too loud. I have a neighbor that does play loud music very late at night, and there are different ways that I can respond to this. Do I have a relationship with this neighbor? Do I send a note and say, hey, I know you don't realize how loud the music is, but it is two o'clock in the morning and it is quite loud. Um, do I call the police? Do I call the people that run the apartment complex that I live in? Do I go to another next door neighbor and say, hey, do you wanna come with me and talk to this neighbor? These are all options that are available to me, but all of them have a different story of what kind of community that we wanna live in, of what resources are available to me. So the first thing that I could do if I have a relationship with this neighbor is leave a note on the door and say, I'm sure you don't realize how loud the music is. That already is a kind of political act. It's saying, I wanna live in a community where loud music does not get played at two o'clock in the morning. Could we build a relationship together to make that the kind of community that we live in? So we have all of these examples throughout our life that are a form of building a common life together. One example that I give in the book that Cindy mentioned you wake up in the morning, if it's a morning like today, I got back from a flight last night at 11 o'clock, so my morning started quite early this morning with a lot of coffee. So I drink a cup of coffee that's a result of dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people coordinating the work of growing and harvesting and producing and transporting those coffee beans. I use water and electricity that's the result of government regulation and coordination. I take a morning walk every day in a neighborhood that's determined by these kind of communal questions. I walk through a neighborhood that has certain kind of buildings that are allowed to be built there. I walk by a church that's also the place that I vote every election. I walk by different organizations and businesses that are allowed to be built there or ones that are not. The racial and economic and religious makeup of my neighborhood is partially determined by decisions that were made a long time ago about who could live and what kind of neighborhood. So it's not even 9 a.m. and my coffee and my walk around the neighborhood has introduced me to politics. It is a part of the life that I live. So while we have different obligations to our families, to our churches, to our local government, to our state government, to our national government, our life cannot be neatly divided into the political and the non-political. It's 9 a.m. I'm already having a political life. So... As good Christians, we're gonna start with the Bible. <laughs> It's a good place to start. I'm gonna get into some kind of more specific things in a moment about what our political life looks like, how it's very often shaped, and how we might actually shape it ourselves in some more faithful ways. But I do wanna really quickly start, not only with the Bible, because I should start with the Bible, but also because I think it's a really important way for us to reframe how we think about our political life. So I'm gonna start, where a very good place to start, at the beginning in Genesis. And in Genesis 2, or excuse me, do I say Genesis 2 on there? Genesis 1, it says in verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are all familiar with this verse, right? This element of the creation story, man and woman made in God's image, given a commission to rule and reign over all of these things that God has made, this good creation. And I've heard this passage referenced a lot of times when it comes to work, 
What does it mean to be like a working, flourishing human in a community? I've never really heard this passage in the context of politics, but I think this is where politics starts. Too often, I think, our conversations as Christians about politics starts with sin, which is really relevant to our conversations about politics, as all of us have probably intimately experienced. And yet, before we even get to the very messy ways that human communities are really disrupted by sin, the way our decisions, the way our power, the way the shape of our communities is shaped by sin, the first picture we have of human political life in the Bible is this one. This picture of creatures made in God's image, given a commission to take the good gifts of God's creation and make a flourishing community out of it. To rule and reign, these are political words, right? But not with all the negative connotations that will come later after the advent of sin, the way that power is abused, the way that rule is distorted. Instead, this is an image of creatures doing the good work that God has given them to do. And this commission is never revoked. And so we see at the very end of the story, in, I'm skipping a lot of important things, all the way at the end of the story in Revelation 21, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So the image we have at the end of the story is of this commission given at the very beginning, perfectly fulfilled, not in a church, not in a garden, but in a city a picture of human community and creativity, of humans who actually did take those good gifts of God's creation and did something with them, created a flourishing community. In this case, ultimately by the grace of God that made it possible for them to do that apart from sin, but that commission that was given was never revoked. And that commission is seen in really mangled and distorted ways in the rest of these pages I skipped over, but that beautiful end of the story I think is another important element of us beginning with this positive vision of political life. Now, a passage that I won't go to because I don't have time, but that is really crucial to this story as well, in the middle of this book, in Isaiah 60, is another description of the New Jerusalem. But in this description, Isaiah says, the kings of the nations will bring their good gifts into the New Jerusalem. These good gifts, these instances of creation, of human creativity, of flourishing, are brought into the new Jerusalem. To me, this is a picture of we're given a commission, a political commission, to create flourishing communities with the good gifts of God's creation. We see that commission perfectly fulfilled at the end of the story, and in the middle we're told those times that you get it right, those gifts that you bring, are brought into the new Jerusalem. They're not destroyed, they're not discarded, those moments of reconciliation, of healing, of community building, those good gifts, that good fruitful work is brought into the new creation. So that's the kind of shape of the story. I have two other places I want to go very quickly, in part to bring in the other really necessary element of this. So this is a beautiful story about politics that none of us have experienced. <laughs> and in the middle of the story, where the political story is not so rosy, where it's quite difficult, where we see what happens when power is abused and the story is distorted and human beings are used for the gain of others, this is what it says in the middle, in Isaiah 1. 
The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Every single time I read this, I think the people listening would be like, you don't? You told us to do that. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? You did. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So as we see in the continuing story of Israel, especially in the life and the work of the prophets, this constant refrain of the relationship between justice building a flourishing community, and worship. This passage also doesn't tell us that there's this complete contrast, right, between spiritual formation, between the practices that we have, the festivals, the sacrifices, and our common life together, the way that we treat the most vulnerable among us. This passage teaches us that when our spiritual formation practices, for us, spiritual disciplines, sacraments, worship services, when those spiritual formation practices go unexamined, we end up participating in rituals that are detestable to God. Good practices, as we'll see again throughout this book, lead us in the direction of seeking justice, defending the oppressed, goals with unavoidably political dimensions. So here might be the most common perversion for the people of God. No matter our particular politics, our affiliations, the people that we support, this is our continual common perversion to expect our religious devotion to excuse our injustice. So then later, actually later in Isaiah, Isaiah 58, he says, your fasting, this practice that is supposed to form you in a positive way towards worship of God, it ends in quarreling and strife. Is this the fast I have chosen? Is this the fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, and break every yoke? This is another passage that shows us the relationship between spiritual formation and our political lives, but it doesn't teach us that justice work is a substitute for spiritual formation. It ties them intimately together. We'll get to this again later when it comes to corporate practices and spiritual disciplines, but we shouldn't miss this. The work of losing the chains of injustice is still described in terms of spiritual formation. It's a fast. It's a practice. It's something that you grow in as you practice it. This is a form of the regular, habitual rhythm of the people of God. Okay, one last passage because I do think I should talk about Jesus. So I'm going to go to Luke 4. This passage is less about the larger story of political life in scripture and more about a particular temptation, just like Isaiah's was. So in Luke chapter four, Jesus proclaims a message. But before we get that, Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness, practicing a spiritual discipline. He has resisted temptation, something that requires spiritual discipline. And when he returns, it says he was in the power of the spirit. And this is when he begins teaching. 
He doesn't get a bunch of intellectual information first. No, he is spiritually formed by a practice in the wilderness. He was alone, he fasted, he was tested, he was filled with the Spirit. Then he enters public ministry, and when it's his moment to go into public ministry, to dazzle the people, to come in with the word, he goes back to his hometown and picks up a scroll that everyone already knows. So he reads from Isaiah, he proclaims this message, he says in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A political message, if there ever was one, in church. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, says, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and the people are so jazzed. They're like, this guy is amazing. And then he says to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And then he says something really wild. He says, I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. He gets out of it, he walks away, there's no explanation given for how he does that. So he gives this message that they love, And then he says, oh, by the way, there's this kind of random story about these two prophets, and they want to throw him off a cliff. There's a lot of explanations about what's going on here, but I think one that's really crucial for us thinking about our political life is that Jesus says, this is the message of the coming kingdom of God. I will do all of these incredible things. I will feed the hungry. I will set the oppressed free. And the people who think of themselves as those oppressed and those hungry go, yes, do it. Get those oppressors off our back. You're great, Jesus. And the second he says, maybe sometimes it's you. Maybe sometimes in the history of the people of God, it's you that has mistreated the poor and the vulnerable. Maybe sometimes the prophets have gone not to you, but to actually the people that you think of as the outsiders. The second they realize that maybe they're not the good guys in this story, they want to throw them off a cliff. And I I end with this particular biblical message, in part because I'm about to share a lot of things that will be really easy for most of us in this room, including myself, to say, yeah, look at those terrible other people. (laughs) Those other people that are so motivated by their emotions and they believe these bad political stories. And I've seen the clips online. Those are bad people. And I want us instead to say, maybe this is a message for us. Where have we been misshaped by wrong stories? Where are we tempted to believe that if we were just finally the ones with power, we would do it all right? Where do we maybe need to hear actually that this message of of freedom, this proclamation of justice, might have some effects that we don't always love? So, I'm putting down the Bible, but it is still very relevant for this whole discussion. We have this beautiful picture. I think it's beautiful of our common life together, the orientation of the people of God within it. And I know what you're thinking. Everything I have experienced about politics totally matches that beautiful story you just told. I think it's important, though, at the beginning of this year, when we are going to be exhausted and frustrated with politics, to remember how intertwined our lives are with political questions and how the intention of God before sin entered the picture was for political work to be good and life-giving. And we can see glimpses of that now. So, why is it so hard? (laughs) Why is it so hard beyond just the standard answer of sin? 
when we have these kinds of scriptural resources, shouldn't the church be the place that we go, this is the story we have. Let's engage really well. Let's remember we're not always the good guys. Let's be faithful. Let's remember spiritual formation is intertwined with justice. Why do we fail so very often? Well, as Cindy mentioned, my first book came out in 2020 when I was in seminary and quite young. And pastors would ask me to come and talk to their churches because it was 2020, it was usually over Zoom, and they would ask me to come to their churches and they would basically send an email that was like, please come like fix everything. <laughs> I don't have exact questions. I just like, things are bad. Please come and, you know, give a message that'll really get them. And I think underlying that kind of, you know, large request was the idea that if someone could come in and just say, okay, here's the truth. Here's a really good sermon. Here's a good message. Here's a Sunday school lesson. Bam, fix it. Because the problem was intellectual, right? People misunderstood what they were supposed to do as Christians in the political sphere. And if you can just come and tell them the truth in a very convincing way, it'll fix it. I think now, four years later, we're very aware that that's not true, right? That it's a lot harder to fix these big problems than just having our theology ironed out. It's what I think we most miss in our political lives, that we're not usually engaging from our ideas, our theology, our best intentions. We're engaging from a deeper place than we're always very conscious of from the place of stories and emotion and identities. And this is something I think we've all learned over the last few years. People cannot be fed a steady diet of social media, of cable news, of Facebook posts, of political advertisements, and not have that affect their spiritual lives. We can't let that fester and grow as if it will not affect us spiritually and theologically. There are some things about humans, how we best function, how we're moved, what kind of stories attract us, that politics has strangely understood better than the church very often. So I, I used to give an example of a Reagan ad, um, but I usually give it to college students who've never seen it before. Some of you may have seen it before, so I won't take the time, um, but I will give you some examples. These are some ads from the last couple of years that illustrate what I'm talking about. You can't really respond to this with a cogent theological argument that will undo it, right? These are images, and I could show you some clips if we had the time that do it even more effectively, that don't give a message that says, here are the rational, logical reasons you should vote for this person. Here's a list that will play across the screen. Here's the economic details of how our country's doing. Here's the policies this candidate believes in. No, it tells you a story about you and your community. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. You'll be failed by Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump will really get his finger at you. They all draw on a much larger story, right, about what's ultimately wrong in the world. Who will fix it? Who will make it worse? Who's coming for your people? Who are your kind of people? And how do you protect them? The Reagan video that I show gives a bunch of information like this. It literally has a voiceover. It's the morning, it's morning in America ad, if everyone remembers that. Right? You have a list of economic details, of policy details. Every time I show that video to people, especially to people who have never seen it before, they remember the images and the music. Right? It's a bunch of images of people moving into a new house with a white picket fence, of soldiers, of workers, of literally a farmer and a tractor. And I'll ask them afterwards, could you tell me any of the information that was said in the voiceover? Any of the actual kind of like rational arguments for why Reagan was better? Usually people cannot. <laughs> but if I ask them, how did that make you feel? People have lots to say. Right? That was a certain vision of what makes a good life and a good community and who will fix it. And I'm attracted to that vision. 
Whether or not I can give you a rational argument for why voting for Reagan is better, just like these ads in an opposite direction, say, this is what I want to avoid. This is the vision of my community I'm scared of. These are the people I'm trying to protect. I might not have a rational reason for why I'm voting for these people. I might construct one later, but at the heart are these emotions, this story, this community. I like to use the language of false gospels to talk about this, in part because I'm a Christian and the gospel is a good word, in part because I think it would be a misunderstanding for us to just call these stories. They are stories. They tell us about what kind of creatures humans are, what kind of community we want to live in, what makes a good life. But more than that, they say this is what is ultimately wrong with the world. This is what's keeping you from having the community you want to have. This is what's making your neighborhood not safe for your kids. This is what's keeping you sad or frustrated or, or not with enough money or not with the family that you want. And this is the solution that will make all of these things better. These gospels draw on our loves what we want out of life, what we think is a good life, and our loyalties. What kind of people do we think are our kind of people? What kind of people do we think are not our kind of people? How do we see our identity in relationship to our larger community? And these loves and loyalties, these pulls on us, are shaped by a variety of things we tend to ignore. Emotion. We are pulled through the world by emotion. It's not a bad thing, but it often goes unexamined. And I'm going to return to this in a minute, but this reason, this emotional pull, is not a reason to dismiss or disregard the political positions of others, even when you can see how motivated by emotion they are. Those emotions are important to listen to, to engage with, to follow them to maybe a story that actually has nothing to do with politics, has to do with their background, their family, some experience they had, but it shapes their political positions. Storytelling. We are a storytelling people. I just told you a version of a story, but we have all kinds of stories about this church. What kind of people are we? Where do we come from? Our families, our country. And politics tells fantastic stories. And then loyalty, as I mentioned earlier, a combination of our sense of identity and our sense of community. Who am I? Who do I belong to? And who do I need to protect those people I belong to from? So these tools, fear, desire, love, and hate, are mobilized in our political life in really powerful ways. We watch cable news and we learn what to fear, who to fear, on a physiological level. There have been studies that have shown that even if we aren't afraid of the thing that's being shown, it's such powerful storytelling that we end up kind of clenching our fists and pulling our shoulders up to our ears. So I'm going to give two examples of these false gospels, one that initially you probably will not see yourself in, but I hope eventually you sort of will, and one that I think is especially true for a lot of churches, maybe even in our area of the country. And I don't mean the South, I mean the Triangle. <laughs> one of those examples, the prosperity gospel. And every time I say this, people have a certain image I know that pops into your mind. You think of a guy with a jet asking for your seed money so that with faith you can be a billionaire and have all the health and wealth that you want, right? And you're like, that is not me. <laughs> and yet, I think the prosperity gospel is a lot more insidious in most of our lives. On some level, most Americans have been taught a story that says, if you work hard and are a good person, you deserve some level of financial and physical security. I spent some time recently talking to a bunch of high schoolers, including a high school that was in this area. And in trying to introduce this concept, I thought, OK, to get them engaged, high schoolers, what do I do? I'll ask them about their favorite movies or TV shows which was a real gamble, because like they could say whatever they wanted, but I said, you know, who wants to tell me about your favorite movie or TV show? Every single one of the five students that very excitedly told me about their favorite movie or TV show 
told me some version of an underdog story. The person who's the tiniest person on the football team works really hard over the summer and then they become the star quarterback and win the big game and everything's great. Or the kid that like was a nerd and no one liked him in high school, he learned how to do computers and then he became a computer genius and a millionaire. All of the stories they loved were essentially prosperity gospel stories. If you're a good person and you work hard, whether it's God or the market or the universe, you are owed a decently good life. This is a powerful story outside of our political lives, but once you start noticing it in the messages we receive in our political lives, it's everywhere, on the right and the left. If you're a good person and you work hard, you deserve good things. I'm gonna do that one a little shorter because I think this next one is also important. The second example that I have is the gospel of individual expression. And I'm going to describe this in very vague terms because I think it, it really does exist on both the right and the left end of the political spectrum. And if I give anything too specific, people too often are like, ah, I know what you're talking about, it's this issue. Try and imagine for a second where you've seen this show up. What's ultimately wrong with the world is that I am restricted from expressing myself and living in a way most true to me as an individual. The solution to this greatest problem in the world is unburdening. Maybe it's unburdening from traditional morals. Maybe it's unburdening from the demands of my neighbors. Maybe it's unburdening from caring about others. There are lots of political issues motivated by a desire to express myself, to unburden myself from community restrictions. On the right, there are examples of this. It can look like resistance to any person restricting me or telling me what to do. On the left, it can look like resistance to anything traditional or long-standing as an undue restriction. And some of the particular political issues that kind of come out of this gospel could be good political issues to support, but that's really the key here, right? It's not just about the policy we're supporting, it's what is the story underlying it, and do I really want to go along with that story? We need to critically interrogate the underlying stories animating these issues, because we will not just be merely formed by the policy will be formed by the underlying story. We'll learn a story about the world that shapes our theology, our relationships, our lives. In this case, this is the story. I am an atomized individual. I can do whatever I want, and anyone who places any demands on me is an undue restriction on my expression or my freedom. And this shows up in politics especially because, like I said, the number one question that I am asked is who should I vote for? And most of the time, the belief underlying that question is this, my vote is an expression of who I am as a person. I need my vote to represent everything I believe and who I am. It tells other people who I am and what community I belong to, so help me make the right decision so I can express myself most fully. This has disastrous effects. If your vote has to be an expression of all of your convictions, all of your values, your inner identity as a person, what community you belong to, Suddenly, there's no room for compromise, for strategic thinking, for saying, maybe I vote this way on this part of the ballot and a different way on another part. Maybe this year this is the most important issue, but another year it's a different one. Suddenly, none of that thinking can really work because this vote has to express who I am as a person. Politics is no longer contingent or provisional. It's no longer something that we kind of try our best and we make mistakes and we're trying to build a community. Suddenly, it is an expression of my inner identity. It defines me. So, two examples of false gospels, there are so many others. This is the general framework, right? What is the big problem and who solves it? Typically, the who is a person to vote for. <laughs> the big problem and who solves it. These are just two examples. There are lots of other false gospels that animate our political life. I'm not gonna spend more time here because I think the real heart of what I wanna share with y'all today is how we respond to this. 
There was a time when I would give a talk like this, and this part would be the part that people would go, oh, I have never really thought about it that way. We've seen a lot in the last few years about how storytelling and emotion and community and loyalty, how that shapes our political life. But we haven't spent nearly as much time thinking about how we respond to that. And as I said earlier, I wrote the first book that I wrote in 2020, I think I was 25, which is dumb <laughs> to write a book when you're 25. Um, but the reason that I did it was because I really wasn't trying to offer some grand solution to this problem. I wasn't trying to say, here is this upstart who's like, I will fix the church and the world, here is the solution. I really actually was spending most of my time in seminary reading really old theologians and church fathers and thinking, maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel totally. Maybe there are some resources in our tradition that if we thought about them a little differently, if we were more intentional in how we practice them, maybe they could help us not just survive a political season and really all of our political lives, maybe they could help us thrive well. Maybe they could help us balance this fact that the story I just told you says we have to be engaged in our political life. This is a commission that is given to us and not revoked. And yet this is how challenging it is to be engaged in this without harming our souls. So this is what I think we should do. I think we should go to church. <laughs> I think we should return to some of the spiritual practices of the church, some of our, our normal, traditional ways of being together. But we should think about them a little bit differently. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this part because I actually want to spend time on the next slide, which is about spiritual formation on a kind of more personal level. But I think these are important to note first, that I do think that our communal ways of gathering shape us in some pretty significant ways. That together, how we exist as a community teaches us that our primary identity is in Christ and the people of God that transcends countries and nations and time. That we are not merely you know, united in Christ as individuals, but collectively as the body of Christ. My church in Durham recently had a retreat where we focused on the communion of saints and the family of God, and we spent an afternoon around a fire just talking about what would it look like for us to really live out this communal element. Not just because we want to feel good, not because we want to have a good community, but because we actually think it's really important to resist those claims on our community that our political life will make. That says, no, these are your kind of people and these people aren't. So we spent some time thinking about that. We came up with a bunch of solutions, things like my personal goal and dream is that if someone were to walk into my church, they wouldn't be able to tell who was getting in the same car and going to home together. That the way we sat in the pews, you like wouldn't be able to tell whose kid is whose and who's married to who, and that we were all just a family together. Someone else said, she felt really convicted by me saying that, she said, you know, I always go to my spouse first during the passing of the peace. What if I didn't? What if my next door neighbor who comes with me and sits next, what if they were my first choice, just sometimes? We came up with a lot of ideas that were specific to our community, but we were all kind of oriented around what would it look like to strengthen our sense that we ultimately belong to one another, not just as a good idea, but actually as this surprisingly political resistance to the claims of who we are that are so often given to us in the media. That relates really deeply to our sense of identity. How do we see in our, how we see, how do we see in our own community acts of resistance against those primary identities? How are our identities formed through the words we say and the repetitive acts that we do? In her book, High Conflict, Amanda Ripley describes many of the conditions that help us disagree well in community. Her goal is not that we avoid conflict, but that we avoid high conflict, conflict that's intractable, conflict that involves identity, conflict that you can't really work through. She wants us to have good conflict. And she says, we disagree better when we have shared interests or identities with people that we also have differences with. Once all of those aspects of our identity coalesce into a single thing, that's when the conflict becomes intractable. 
So we can cultivate good disagreement by meeting people in spaces of shared common ground, like a church. And her research has also shown something Christians have been doing for centuries, that when we eat together, when we build relationships, when we live together even, there are some people in my church going, what would it look like for some of these younger single people to live with a couple that has older kids? But her research has shown that when we do all of those things, we build relationships, we eat together under low pressure circumstances, have shared experiences, live together, we navigate conflict better. So this part of identity to me is a question of where are we incorporating more shared meals in our common life, in your neighborhood or in the church? This all relates to our ability to tell good stories together and to have a kind of training ground in our communities that helps us disagree better together, which is where I want to move for the last bit of my time. Our corporate worship, in other words, trains us in a story, sends us with that story into our various manifestations of worship, into our stewardship of earthly resources, our care for the vulnerable, our cultural creativity, and our responsibility to the communities we live in. So on a more practical level, I want to talk about a few spiritual disciplines that might be really good for 2024 in particular. I want to say first, I'm someone who did not grow up in a church that really goodly talked about spiritual disciplines. Um, that sounded pretty Catholic to us. Uh, we did not want to do anything with the word discipline or repetition or anything like that. Um, I want to say first, there are some particular disciplines that I think would be good for an election year in general or for spending you know, specific, concentrated time thinking about your political life. But there's a lot of freedom here, too. These are three elements that I think should be involved in anything you want to take on to make 2024 a more healthy year. It should involve rhythm. This is usually where I have a Presbyterian joke about me having no rhythm. <laughs> uh, so maybe I'm in good company. <laughs> um, I have no rhythm, but something that has some other kind of rhythm that you do regularly, that you maybe do with others that can keep you accountable to that rhythm. Something that involves language, repetition, really important. The songs that we sing tend to stick way more in our heads than any sermon I've ever had, right? So that combination of rhythm and language, important. So it should involve rhythm, it should involve language, intentional language, and it should involve our bodies. Anything that doesn't is less likely to stick to us than the things that we do repetitively with our bodies. So there's a lot that you could say is kind of a repetitive thing you do with your body that requires language that forms you in such a way that you can resist some of these powerful false gospels in our political life. But there are a couple I wanna talk about really quickly. One of those being the Lord's Prayer. When I was in seminary, I got extra credit for a spiritual discipline, which I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but I got extra credit for doing a spiritual discipline, and the one that I picked was to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. So I had a little reminder on my phone to pray it three times a day. Why is this a spiritual discipline for our political life? Well, I noticed that every time I prayed it, not only were there different parts that really stood out to me, but once I had a new frame for thinking about it, once I thought about it in a kind of political direction, it changed it. I couldn't really pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then pass someone on the street asking for some daily bread and not feel like I might have a political obligation to that person. I might pray, our father, and suddenly realize that some of the disputes that I had amongst other Christians who were praying the same thing maybe that same day faded a little bit. There were different elements of it that stuck out in every single time, but that regular rhythm of praying that prayer, of putting myself in that receptive position, really was significant for me, especially once I did it with the intention of shaping my political life in a better way. Another example being Sabbath. 
this is a good example of something that we might practice without much political effect, without being intentional about how and why we do it. I won't get into this whole story, but I'm assuming most of you are familiar with this, but the description of Sabbath in the Old Testament is really oriented towards justice, right? This is rest for you, rest for your animals, rest for everyone in your household. And so it's become a practice for me to think about how I can do rest in a way that doesn't impinge on the rest of others. Rest that's restorative for me and for my community. Rest that isn't, I go get a pedicure. Not that a pedicure is bad. I love me a good pedicure. But rest that doesn't require other, another person's labor, especially their labor that might exploit them. So this became a regular practice for me a few lengths ago, where I thought, what does it mean every Sunday to rest in a way that is restorative for my larger community? What does it mean for me not to say, okay, I don't want to cook on Sundays, so I'm going to go to a restaurant, which is, I think, immoral. But what does it mean for me to do something restorative with the food that I eat, with the resources that I have? How am I building community in a restful way that does something for my larger community? The last one of these, fasting and feasting. One of the things that really started the first book that I wrote was starting to think a little bit more about spiritual disciplines as not primarily about forming myself just individually, not about making myself a better person internally, but about spiritual formation for the sake of the world, spiritual formation oriented as the people of God were from the very beginning. The first conversation God has with Abraham is, you will be a, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. And so I started thinking about what spiritual formation for the world really meant, and an example that a historian gave me was fasting in the early church. Fasting not primarily as just a discipline to kind of train my body or to the way I grew up thinking of it, right? It's just I'm hungry, so I'm dependent upon God, or I'm in pain, so that must be spiritual or something like that. Instead, fasting was often practiced to say, okay, someone in our community needs bread. I have enough to eat for today, and you have enough to eat for today. We don't have enough to give him. What if we fasted for a few days, and then we had enough to feed him for a week? Now, it might not look exactly like that. You might not fast for a few days and then have extra food to bring to someone. What I did a few Lent's ago was I decided, okay, I'm not spending any extra money for all of Lent. I will pay for necessities and nothing else. But instead of just kind of depriving myself for the sake of my own spiritual formation, I said, okay, then how do I take that thing that I have been depriving myself of and use it for someone else? How do I train myself in recognizing that the things that I own are not primarily my own and hold what I have with really open hands? But this practice of fasting is always connected with the practice also of feasting, which, again, I didn't really grow up thinking much about. I had heard of fasting, not so much about feasting. So I tried to make, in this Lent where I practiced this, my giving of that money I hadn't spent a kind of feast. I didn't say, which this isn't bad, but I decided not to say, okay, let's take this money I didn't spend and find a worthy charity and donate it online. That's good. That's fine. It's not really it's not really feasting. <laughs> it wasn't celebratory. So I instead said, who do I know, maybe my literal, in my neighborhood, my next door neighbors, who need something that I can give in a way that is celebratory with them? Not just to make myself feel better or to make it more enjoyable, but to build community with them. How do I expend these resources that I have been depriving myself of in a way that glorifies God in a joyful way? Maybe that fasting can end in this joy of feasting. And there are so many ways you could do all of these things. The point of these examples that I'm giving is primarily to say, what if we started 2024, a year that I know, we spent all this time saying, it will be challenging, it will be divisive, you will have challenging conversations around dinner tables and in your church and things will be hard. What if instead we said, 
how can I institute these practices, this rhythm, this language that involves my body, that forms me into the kind of person that can respond with love when there's things that are hard, that can be open-handed with the things that I have, and I think really importantly, can teach me to not assume that the other person across the table from me will disagree with me. <laughs> I think a lot of us are preparing for a year that things will be hard and we're toughening our skin and we're pulling out our sharp edges and we're ready to just hunger down until things are better. And I think a lot of these practices might help us say, what if I expected better of people? I might be disappointed, that could happen but maybe I'm surprised. <laughs> a lot of people who find out that I do this work will say to me, you must have such tough skin. You must just be one of those people that doesn't mind disagreement, that really likes getting in there with people. And what I tell them is, actually, I kind of got into this work because I kept being surprised. I kept assuming people would be mean and greedy and aggressive, and sometimes they were, don't get me wrong, but often they weren't. <laughs> sometimes they actually, when we had a conversation about a difficult issue, they changed their mind and I changed mine. Sometimes I assumed their positions and I was wrong. Sometimes I assumed that if we talked about something I knew we disagreed on, we would get angry and things would get hard. And sometimes they did, but sometimes they didn't. So these are just suggestions to provoke your thinking about what kind of practices you could take on this year, not just to kind of have a better political position, not necessarily to vote better, though maybe you will, but to be the kind of person that can engage these questions really faithfully and with an open mind. So lastly, I want to give a couple really, really practical suggestions for this year. The first one is that we do a media audit. <laughs> Fun stuff, an audit. Um, this has been transformative in my own life. And this is where what I said earlier really comes in, the temptation to say, oh, those other people really need this my aunt, my child, my next door neighbor, like they really need this help. No, we really need this help. So I would suggest starting 2024 with an audit, there are a couple steps I would recommend. The first one, shocker, is to pray, but truly pray. Pray for God to bring to mind things as you do this audit that maybe would not be brought to your mind. Pray for honesty that might be really hard. Pray for insight, pray for courage and the strength to kind of do this well. And then create an outline of your regular day, just like a calendar, right? Maybe you wake up at 5 or 6 in the morning. Maybe you go to bed at 9 or 10, whatever. Make a, make a day. And just on a regular day, maybe do it for a few days if some of your days are really different from each other. And take a note. When do I consume media of any kind? Read a book, read a newspaper, listen to a podcast, get on social media, watch a YouTube video, anything. Write down. What is a normal rhythm for you? Maybe actually record it during a day so that maybe you can be more honest or remember better. Pay attention to a lot of things. Pay attention to what kind of media it is. Pay attention to what it emphasizes. And then if you really want to do this well, what would be really great is to take an audit during a day, write down every media you consume, and write how you felt before you consumed it and how you felt after. And then the last step of this is to invite community. This isn't something that you do completely individually. Maybe it's something you do in your household. Maybe it's something you do with a small group. Maybe it's something you invite a friend from church and say, will you look at this with me? There are things I can't see that maybe you can see. Or there's things that I'm not being honest about that you might help me be honest about. Like if I told my sister that I only scroll on TikTok for 30 minutes a day, she would be like, mm, <laughs> let's be real, that's not true. Um, so invite community into helping you do this. And then ask these kinds of questions. After you've made this list, after you've really evaluated your day, ask these kinds of questions. 
What does this make me love? What does it make me hate? This will be really hard to be honest about. And maybe if you need to reframe it, ask it like this. What does it want to make me love? What does it want to make me hate? What does this media think I should fear? Or who does it think I should fear? And be honest, again, even if you think that's a very legitimate fear, write it down. Even if you think, no, I should be afraid of that, ask, what is it trying to make me fear? Who does this media help me see as my neighbor? Who does it tempt me to view with suspicion or condescension? Those are different words, <laughs> right? Who does it tempt me to think, oh, those idiots? Or who does it tempt me to say, gosh, those people are scary? Again, these might be legitimate responses to some of these things, but write it down. What does this media make me want the most? For myself, for my family, for my community, what solution does it present to the world's problems? So this is a good just beginning of 2024 audit to say what is shaping and forming me? And this could really inform your answer to the last slide. What spiritual disciplines do I need? Well, I don't know, how am I being formed? What stories am I tempted to believe? What ways of media seem to be most kind of captivating for me? Is it the things I listen to? Is it the things I see? What time of day am I most susceptible to consuming media that's shaping me? And how might that then shape what spiritual disciplines I might want to consider taking on? Okay, in the last few minutes that I have, I want to share just a couple more things that move from how do I be the kind of person that can do this well? How can I discern these stories? How can I combat them? To how can I have a political conversation? <laughs> um, I could spend an hour talking about that, but there are a few things that I just think are really crucial for us going into 2024 that I want to mention. The first is lower the temperature. <laughs> maybe literally, I don't know, um, maybe figuratively. Spend some time in advance of a conversation thinking about how the setting, the time of day, and your own feelings might up the temperature instead of lowering it. This is crucial for people who do this in kind of a workplace setting or a church setting, but it's crucial for family relationships as well. Is the Thanksgiving dinner table the moment you want to have this conversation? <laughs> I hear a lot of people be like, oh, I'm so over the Thanksgiving conversation. That's not the right moment, maybe. It doesn't mean there's no moment. Maybe it's the moment an hour after the dinner when the tryptophan has hit and you have a cup of coffee and you're feeling like maybe the work is over and the kind of expectation of this big moment is over and maybe you can have a better conversation. Maybe it's a phone call on a totally different day. Maybe it's a car ride. I have no proof of this, but I have heard from multiple people that it's easier to have a hard conversation when you're in the car because you don't have to look at the other person. <laughs> so I don't know. Consider the context. What lowers the temperature and what raises it? And spend some time evaluating yourself and your feelings. Again, this is really easy to say those other people with their really messed up feelings, but this is time to think about yours. Learn to notice the signs that you have, that you are getting heated, and evaluate them. For me, it's I get a little sweaty, I clench my fingers, I can feel the tension in my neck or my head, and maybe after that conversation, I reflect. I spend some time journaling or talking to another friend about, okay, why was that the moment that I got so tense? What about that part of the conversation threatened me in some way? Did it threaten my sense of who I am, my sense of my community, the story I'm believing? That kind of regular evaluation after political conversations is huge you will learn a lot about yourself. I could tell you some things I've learned about myself, but thankfully we don't have time. Here 
are some questions and some statements that can help with this. Lowering the temperature and evaluating your own contribution to the temperature. First, and I learned this question by seeing it in a really dramatic way. I was at a conference, really kind of small, intimate conference with some leaders who were trying to work out some difficult issues. We were there because we disagreed with one another about some things. And a couple people were having a conversation about education. Two people who cared deeply about educating the children and their families and their communities, and they totally disagreed about how to do it, and they were having a really tense conversation. And at one point, one of them said, very earnestly, you can do this wrong if you're not really earnest about it, but very sincerely said to the other person, I just want to tell you, I, I so appreciate how much you care about this. I love that you care about our kids, because I do too. And you could have felt literally the temperature in the room lower, because it was shared common ground, and it humanized the conversation. You care about this. Thank you for caring about this. Paying attention to your own feelings also means asking questions of other people's feelings and yourself. So asking those questions afterwards, why did I respond that way? Why was that such an intense issue and moment for me? In the moment, if you have the presence of mind, you can also ask questions that help do that for the other person. That seemed to really matter to you. That, that seemed to really kind of start you being really engaged in this. Can you tell me more about why? Why is that the thing that feels so important? Again, you can ask these questions in a condescending way that does not help, but you can also ask them in a really helpful way. Can you tell me about a moment or experience that shaped why this is so important to you? I can totally change it, right? You think you're having this argument about taxes or education or housing, and all of a sudden you find out that there was this thing when they were a kid and they had this experience and it shaped them forever, and that's really what's motivating this. It, it matters. It still impacts the, the policies you're both talking about, but you have to get to the story and the emotion and the feeling behind it. And lastly, this is the last example that I'll give. It's not a question, but just a statement. If it feels like it's getting really tense, just naming how you feel. I'm worried this will affect our relationship. It might end the conversation. You might both go, okay, this isn't the time. Or it might just be a moment to say, I'm saying that I'm worried this will hurt our relationship because you think this issue is important and I do too, and I think this relationship is important. And then that changes the whole conversation. Suddenly it's not just about the issue, it's about how we build a common life together in a faithful and healthy way. So I'll leave you with those questions. They're good ways to have a better conversation about this, but the kind of thrust of all of that, and kind of the thrust of all I've been saying is, I think the challenge for us is discerning the stories that are shaping us, discerning the feelings that are motivating us, and instead of avoiding or dismissing those feelings, figuring out a way to honor them while also gently challenging some of them. Because some of those fears and those sense of loyalty, they're not the loyalties we're supposed to have, they're not the fears we're supposed to have. And listening to how this story that we started with confronts those feelings, I think is the real task for us, more than discerning who we vote for or what policies we support. So thank you all. <laughs>